You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. So in a turnaround to the usual BJSM podcasts, I have Karim Khan here who's going to be interviewed. Hi, Karim. G'day. It's strange to be on this side of the call. So you've been going around talking about sports and exercise medicine worldwide, but for this uh, podcast, we want to concentrate on the exercise part. Sure, Duncan. And you know, the purpose of this podcast really is to share some thoughts about dose. But just briefly recap, I've had a lot of traction from talking to people about the relative importance of smoking, diabetes, obesity, and physical activity. And with apologies to folks who've heard this one before, what I'll often do at a meeting is put up these four major health risk factors on a slide. So there's four boxes. One has smoking, one has diabetes, one has obesity written on it, and the fourth one is low fitness. And to cut to the chase there, we give people a chance to vote for which one they think is the biggest health problem for a society. And usually obesity comes up first as the the biggest concern for people. And what we end up showing is that actually low fitness kills more Americans than either of those other three conditions. So the take-home message is that low fitness kills more Americans than smoking, diabetes, or obesity. And then just to crank that up, we combine the smoking, diabetes, and obesity into one group, and we call that smoker diabetes. And then we ask the question of the audience, now if those three killers were all together, surely they'd kill more Americans than uh, low fitness. But in fact, the somewhat surprising answer is that actually the low fitness kills more Americans than smoking, diabetes, and obesity combined. So we have this point. It obviously raises the question of what data is that based on and where does that information come from. And I'll direct readers to the Stephen Blair podcast for the detailed version and to his papers in JAMA and BJSM. But just to capture it in an elevator pitch, I can explain that um, the risk factors were measured at around age 50. So these are people who are functioning well and working and thinking that they're essentially healthy. And they may have the risk factor of smoking, diabetes, obesity, or low fitness, for example. And then Steve Blair followed these folks for 20 years and looked to see what the cause of death was and to see who died. And it was the folks who were the low fitness group who died at a much greater rate than the folks who had smoking, diabetes, or obesity as a risk factor. So it clearly makes the point that low fitness is a more lethal risk factor than these other three conditions. In people's heads, obesity and fitness are quite conflated. Um, you know, how can you sort of pull those two apart and and really sort of look at the, the separate risk factors? Yeah, it raised the issue of the definition of low fitness. And the beauty of Steve's work is that um, he had a measure of fitness. So people were on a treadmill and they were doing graded exercise. So... They weren't obese at that point, age 50, by the regular BMI measures, but they were low fit if they fell in the bottom 20% of the population on this graded exercise test. And for people to get a feel for being in the lowest 20%, it means that they don't accumulate, um, say, 22 to 30 minutes a day of physical activity. If you're listening to this and you're accumulating 22 minutes of physical activity a day, then you won't be in that low fitness group. And it's probably a good place for us, Duncan, to move into that question of dose. Mm, absolutely. So, um, 
you said there sort of 22 to 30 minutes of exercise and I've seen that uh, number sort of banded around as a, as a public health figure for, for what the population should be um, aiming for. Is that the sort of optimum amount? Yeah, that's the key purpose of this podcast and why I appreciate the chance to chat about it is this distinction between the public health figure and the people's individual health figure. So listeners will realise that if the government and the nation are making plans, they need to do something that's cheap and that's readily um, accessible. So like a vaccination, that's how public health works. It's a, it's a fantastic principle of public health that you influence a lot of people with something that's cheap and you get health benefits and you move the normal distribution to a slightly healthier position and that has tremendous benefits. And so that's how the Surgeon General guidelines and the National Activity Guidelines in America and basically every country has got to this position of suggesting what's effectively 150 minutes of physical activity a week. Now, it's, that's been a great success story because it has been widely adopted and there's consistency among nations. And so people know that dose. And if I'm at a conference and I ask people to suggest what a healthy dose of physical activity is, they'll come to that place. But what I often do at a meeting is I'll sneak in this other question where I'll say, if I'm a regular person and I'm trying to get advice from you as health professionals in this audience, and I say, what's the optimum dose I should do for my health? That actually leads to a very interesting discussion, Duncan, and really a wide range of physical activity suggestions from that public health dose as a minimum to you know, often a much larger dose. And so I'll I'd like to make the point that there are two questions here. What's the dose that you should recommend if you were the Prime Minister of a country and you were advocating what a country could do and what's realistic? That's the public health dose. But as individuals, the way I frame it is that um, if there was a slightly greater dose, then that gave you additional benefits, more reduction in cancer risk, more prevention of Alzheimer's disease, greater reduction of stroke risk, why wouldn't you, you know, wouldn't you take that medication? And the answer to that dose question is a little bit tricky, but it's probably around 60 minutes. And let me tell you why I say that, and let me put the caveats in on that one. So the key data for this come from a bunch of studies where people are looking at a dose response curve. On the y-axis, we have relative risk of death. And on the x-axis, we have uh, minutes of physical activity a day. You know, what's the sweet spot? Where can we get more benefit? And clearly, there's the, the first half hour gives you the maximum benefit, which is why it's a great place for the public health dose to say 30 minutes of physical activity a day, roughly 22 to 30 minutes will give you 150 minutes a week. But the slope continues to decrease. If we say that lowering your risk of death means that you know, the line is decreasing, it continues to decrease at a less steep rate for the next number of minutes per day for quite a while. So there's no obvious best amount, but it sort of curves off around 60 minutes a day. So conceptually, it's like if exercise was a pill, if you took one pill, you get the most bang for your buck. If it was an expensive pill, that was the best value for money. But if you could sneak a second pill, then you're going to get further reduction in your risk of death, cancer, and other diseases. And if you're looking for a place where it sort of the, the, co- the slope of the curve turns a bit, 60 minutes is one of those places. Clearly, it's not 55 or 65. But I'm trying to share with listeners and at conferences, I'm trying to make the point 
that there's a big difference between um, 60 minutes and 30. But then the further extensions, like 90 minutes a day, 120 minutes a day, the Olympian levels of training, they will help you in the Olympics, but they won't make a massive difference in terms of your reduction in these major diseases. And, I mean, the, the advice is for sort of moderate exercise there, but by, you know, could you do high-impact exercise for less time? Is that as effective? You know, is there a, a sort of dose response to the, the level of the exercise? Yeah, intensity is better because if we hark back to Steve Blair's data um, that we just began with, the public health data, you know, it was a measure of fitness. And so if something makes you fitter, then that's the ultimate goal. So if we keep that in mind, then certainly if you can walk quickly, that's better than walking slowly. And, uh, you know, people get that concept. So the simple message of um, more is better is a nice thing for people to remember. But the other point is that people say, well, what's the least I can get away with is our human nature. And from it's great news, really. I'm very optimistic because walking is a form of moderate physical activity. So when I share these, these comments, people are often surprised that how, people are often surprised how simple it is to be active, that, that walking counts. And I use the term every step counts. And, and that does surprise people because they don't realize that walking, you know, it contributes. I mean, even standing from a chair probably helps health in another way. So that brings us back to the concept of 23.5 hours, that people should limit their sitting and lying um, to 23 and a half hours a day. And there's a podcast on that um, on the BJSM site. So the take-home messages here are that uh, more is better. And so we're trying to improve fitness. So that's one sort of great thing to do. But for people who don't have the capacity to do that and they're trying to say, what's the what's the minimum? Um, they should realise that every step counts. So walking, um, you know, gardening, walking to buses and things, these are fantastic things to do for your health. And I think that's a message that hasn't got out there because there's been this concept that you need to be in Lycra and uh, that advice has, has moved on. The evidence has shown that low levels of physical activity, so moderate physical activity, including walking, um, has health benefits. This, the, this message is going out. How widely is it being adopted? That's a challenge, but I feel we're definitely making progress. So I really feel that with things like The Lancet taking on physical activity as a special issue, mm. um, the, the population, lots of media are taking on the benefits of physical activity much more than they were because they understand that there's evidence now. And the governments are realising that their health bills for chronic diseases will cripple them. And so they're taking on the prevention issue, not because they think it's a good idea, but because they're being forced to, um, you know, not, not for people's health benefits, but because they'll go broke otherwise. So there are many forces moving this agenda in a direction that sport and exercise medicine people have been arguing for for a long time. So I, I see tremendous change in the right direction. And I'm going to suggest readers take a look at one document in terms of you know, what can you do to help move this agenda forward. And that document is called the Seven Investments Document. And we made it the front cover of BJSM in August. And if people Google um, GAPA, G-A-P-A, and Seven Investments, they'll find that document very readily. And the driver for this collaborative document was Fiona Bull, who I'm going to hope to invite to a BJSM podcast. We're just trying to get dates sorted. So hopefully listeners will be able to listen to Fiona Bull talk about that in detail. But the key elements I'll just share in the last couple of minutes of this call, Duncan, and that is that it 
looks at what's called a socio-ecological model. It looks at the big systems that we need to have in place for people to be active. And so for listeners, you know, they might be motivated to be physically active, but if they live in an environment that's dangerous where the footpaths or sidewalks are impossible to walk on, where the weather is uh, inclement, you know, there are a lot of barriers to being physically active. And what the Seven Investments document does is it told the World Health Organization, here is evidence in seven sectors where exercise has been shown to work and it won't cost you very much. And seven's a lot and can be a bit tedious. So I break it down into two groups of three. The schools, kids spend a lot of time in school and obviously they can accumulate their 60 minutes of physical activity in the school settings. Transport is clearly a big thing because as one of our colleagues says, public transit is a walk interrupted. If people are out of their cars, then they're going to accumulate physical activity. And cars have been shown to be a big driver towards obesity. For every hour sitting in a car for commuting, you increase your risk of obesity essentially 20% if we use relative risk. And the third thing related to transit, sort of urban design, it's a walkable community is the term with mixed use dwelling, um, is clearly helpful. So these structural things um, are three of the categories in the seven investments. And then the other three are... um, I think of as being related to sort of sport and health services. And really that means uh, the healthcare system. Clearly every doctor should be asking about physical activity and referring to other health professionals. And physiotherapists are great in great position to both encourage people to, to be more active and, and to assess it and make these messages about the 30 minutes and the 60 minutes. So obviously the healthcare system needs to have that built in structurally in, in hospitals mm-hmm. and in, in community health centres. And the last two are community-wide programs. So this is local government planning um, and the idea of sport for all. So the IOC are getting behind the public health efforts towards physical activity now. So um, rather than having folks watching professional athletes you know, battle it out for their million-dollar salaries, um, we need to have everyone engaged you know, playing sport. And sport can contribute to the physical activity agenda, but it, it's only one part. So if we group those three, saying the healthcare, community-wide programs to roll out those benefits and sport, you know, you have another three. And the final one that I see is overarching is, is education, that uh, the, the seventh of the um, invest, special investments is obviously mass education, public education. And so the idea of the seven investments document, and again, I'm not stealing Fiona Bull's thunder here, but uh, I'm just introducing uh, listeners to it and encouraging them to go to the website to look for this document, is that if you have this sort of coherent approach, there are very practical, very simple things that that governments can do without thinking it's a massive, complicated problem. These are all areas where governments make policies anyway. And so they just need to embed some physical activity promotion into these settings. And that's the genius of the GAPA document. So I see this, this seven investments document as taking us, it's the next step. So the first step was getting the guidelines, and that's been great. And then the next step is rolling out. And the US have tried to roll out through the US National Physical Activity Plan. And uh, that um, is discussed by Bob Salas on one of the BJSM podcasts. You know, globally, the world has got behind this seven investments document through the World Health Organization. And you'll be hearing more about that. So my role today is really just to direct people to a document that's got the word investments in it. It's not always something that people think about in terms of health promotion and physical activity, but it's an important word for governments because they need to be financially prudent. Um, I think 
as users, we might end up calling it the seven simple steps document or something like that, the simple seven simple solutions, you know, for physical activity promotion. And I think I'll just leave it there, Duncan, and say that um, I'm looking forward to discussing that with Fiona Bull. It's interesting that this is a, a much more holistic look at, at exercise because we've seen um, the sort of appraisal of various individual interventions that are tried in primary care which don't seem to be effective at actually getting people to be any more active. Yeah, look, clearly some interventions haven't worked. I'd say um, yeah, that we need to look at this as physical activity at this global level, as you're saying, with multiple opportunities for people to snack on physical activity, as it were, rather than think it's a doctor problem and you know doctors need to promote... Um, physical activity exclusively in their practice. I mean, you know, a patient comes in with diabetes and other chronic diseases, you know, doctors have a short amount of time to make an astute assessment. And so um, brief counselling has actually been shown to work in some settings, but clearly if you don't have the support around a therapy, it won't necessarily get adopted. And, you know, we could use exactly the same analogy with, with medications. If we think of penicillin as being a hugely effective drug, you know, if doctors were just talking about penicillin, say you should be on penicillin, but they couldn't access it, the patients couldn't access it, you know, it just wouldn't work. And so clearly we need to create an environment where the, the patients as individuals and, and people who want to be active can easily access um, this behaviour in this case. And that's why the physical environment, like the transport and, and urban design, and we have an editorial on that in BJSM, um, is so critical and there's a move to that and BJSM's publishing papers on on urban design and transport policy now because it needs to be part of the overall program. Absolutely, Duncan. Um, Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we'll look forward to listening to that podcast when it happens. Thanks for more information Thanks, about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.